Anger is a natural human emotion. It is a natural response, especially to something so heinous once we find out what animals are enduring, so many animals are enduring. So it's not that I would say, let's not be angry, but A, what can we do to channel that anger in a healthy way, in a healthy, effective way? And B, are we cultivating anger as a way to prove something, prove that we care? Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the PBN Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. On this week's episode, we have the wonderful, beautiful and incredibly talented Colleen Patrick-Goudreau. Colleen's compassionate living philosophy is propelling plant-based eating into the mainstream and is changing how many people see animals. She is a recognized expert and thought leader on culinary, social, ethical and practical aspects of living compassionately and healthfully. Colleen is a speaker, a cultural commentator, a podcaster and an award-winning author of seven books, including the the best-selling The Joy of Vegan Baking. Her newest book, The Joyful Vegan, is out now and we discuss it in detail in the podcast. Colleen lives in Oakland, California with her husband David and her two cats Charlie and Michiko. I really hope you enjoy this podcast. Colleen is an incredible wealth of knowledge and I could have spent many hours discussing life, lifestyle, animals and a lot more. Please do consider reviewing this podcast on iTunes if you enjoyed it. It really helps us get the message out there. Let's get to the show. It is really lovely to be here. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. I have been following you for a long time and I think we have a lot to discuss. We absolutely do. Thank you so much for joining us. It's uh, it's a real pleasure. So before we kick off and learn about everything you're doing now, I like to always go back in time and ask our guests, how did you discover the vegan lifestyle and, and what was your vegan story? I was not vegan. I was at a restaurant yesterday and the server asked how long I'd been vegan. I said 20 years. And of course she says, have you always been, you know, well, obviously she didn't know. I, I'm, I'm not 20. Obviously that was clear, but she did ask, have you always been vegan? And I said, no, I've been vegan for 20 years. And that really is, I think what a lot of people think when they meet someone who's vegan is that you've always been vegan. I certainly wasn't. I grew up uh, on the East coast in New Jersey, in the States and grew up eating everything that walked or swam or flew, I mean, everything, right? And also loved animals and didn't make the connection like so many of us. I was a compassionate person. I loved animals. I helped animals when I could. I didn't know I was eating them. And I remember asking my parents some questions about why I'm eating this, And but I love animals, And but we go to the zoo. And they just responded the way most parents do because they didn't see themselves as doing anything harmful. They saw themselves as doing something helpful for me, making sure that I'm eating right healthfully and getting all my nutrients, et cetera. So they made some kind of excuses and you know, you just go on and you start to become desensitized to what had been instinct earlier on. And so I went along that way, loved eating animals and loved eating animal products. And then my memory is that I was about 19 when I read Diet for New America. And that was the book that really just spurred me to start thinking about this differently, to really understand what I was participating in. And my instinct was to stop eating land animals, even though he talks in that book about dairy and eggs and the problems with them, I stopped eating land animals and just didn't make the connection between, you know, violence against animals and the, and the milk and the eggs that we take from them. And so uh, it was several years until I, you know, read another book. I mean, I read books in between, but nothing else had really compelled me to make any more changes until I read Slaughterhouse. And that was 20 years ago now. That was the book that for me, I would have said that Diet for New America made me think i don't like the way we treat animals in terms of the factory situation. But Slaughterhouse is what really turned my mind to the inherent violence in bringing animals into this world 
only to kill them and the culture of violence we create in the slaughter system. I mean, it was quite literally like so many people talk about, it was the awakening. It was like a, a, a switch had been flipped and I quote unquote became vegan, whatever, right, whatever that means. That for me means that I now fully manifested the compassion that was already inside of me and was expressing it unconditionally. And that's what becoming vegan meant to me and still means to me. And so that was kind of the, kind of the short version of the, of my vegan origin story. And at that time, obviously 20 years ago, things were very, very different, but what, what was the kind of reaction from people around you? Cause I'm, I mean, did you know many vegans? No, I didn't. I had worked at a health food store when I was probably about 18. I'm trying to remember. I think one of my coworkers was vegetarian Maybe he was vegan. I don't, I remember justifying to him why I was eating milk and eggs still. I remember that. So either he was vegan or, you know, vegetarian, but I remember that, but he was probably the only person I knew. And so it wasn't until, well, at least when I was vegetarian, when I moved to California, that's when I became vegan. And no, I didn't know any vegans then either. And I was always kind of a lone activist. I was always doing my own thing. Even when I was vegetarian and I said that I hadn't made many changes between vegetarian and vegan, it's not entirely true. I, I considered myself an animal advocate. I was really learning a lot about puppy mills and vivisection and fur, you know, kind of all these other aspects of animal exploitation. But in terms of my own diet, in terms of farmed animals, I was still consuming animal products. But so I was advocating in my own way. But when I became vegan, it changed everything. And I started kind of doing my own thing. Ironically, it started, my my advocacy around veganism started in a Unitarian church here in California. And that's how the whole thing began in terms of teaching cooking classes, tabling. I was doing street TV. This is before, you know, uh, Anonymous for the Voiceless. I was out there with a TV and VCR showing slaughter videos on the streets of Berkeley and handing out Why Vegan pamphlets. And, uh, and that was kind of how I started. And what I found was that people were really moved. As we find, I think people are compelled to make a change, but they didn't know how. And that's why I started teaching cooking classes because I figured this will give me the opportunity to give people the tools they need so they can actually do what they say they wanted to do. And how was the reaction from the people around you? Because obviously, you know, all those years ago, it was quite, I mean, obviously there have been people who've been doing this for, for decades, but if there weren't a lot of people around you that were living this lifestyle, like family and friends, what did they make of it at the time? Was it quite difficult for you? Oh, for sure. Yeah. So back to that, my parents, when I became vegetarian, that was definitely the typical, what's wrong with the way we fed you? What's wrong with the way I raised you? You know, they, I think took it personally and saw it as a commentary on what they were doing or not doing. I always remember that feeling. And I think a lot of vegetarians and vegans, especially vegans, because I think it's a real difference when you become vegan versus vegetarian. We're so enthusiastic. We're so moved by this awareness that we now have that we share it with our loved ones, often just enthusiastically, innocently, not in you know a way that's evangelistic. Sometimes we do, and that does happen as well. And that's part of the whole journey. But I think what's so surprising for us is when we go to our friends and family with this news and they're defensive and they're hostile and they're, they take it personally, it's really jarring. And that was definitely the case with my parents and then a couple close friends uh, who now by, by the time I became vegan, that was much a much bigger story. When I was vegetarian, I had people who supported me being vegetarian and, uh, and you know, again, my parents kind of had to go through their own adjustment. But when I became vegan, it was an entirely different thing. And the people who I thought would understand 
understand why I made this change because they'd already seen me be compassionate. They'd already seen me be an animal advocate, really reacted defensively. So those are the people who are in my life. And that took some shaking out. And I moved to California too. So I was you know, 3,000 miles away. And that I'm sure affected relationships, but I think it really affected the relationships now that I was vegan. And then I was building a community here in California. So I was getting to start from scratch because it happened within the year I had moved here. And the reaction was very interesting. I'm fascinated by how I saw people respond to being vegan, but also teaching veganism, right? Teaching, cooking, and talking about compassion. And I'm really interested in the psychological responses too. Because <laughs> mm. I think a lot of people would like us to sort of just sit down, eat our vegan food and shut up, right? <laughs> For sure. Absolutely. And especially because I was in a community and that's what was interesting about starting in the Unitarian Church. The Unitarian Church is, you know, an ecumenical church. It is, there's no doctrine. Anyone from any background is welcome. Whether someone's a practicing Jew, a practicing Catholic, a practicing whatever, they're welcome in this church. And it's, uh, uh, and it's very justice oriented. And so watching the reaction of people who prided themselves on being justice oriented and being active in all these other justice issues and social issues, watching that take place was was very interesting because these are people who would welcome engagement, who welcomed conversation and who welcomed being <laughs> pushed in directions that forced them to be, you know, better people and more present people in this world. But this definitely challenges people. Mm, that's the one thing, isn't it? We can talk about uh, human rights and we can talk about women's rights, but don't touch my meatloaf. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And I think it's because this is the tension and this is the joy in being vegan, I think. Being vegan, again, I will just repeat for me, it for me is a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. So for me, being vegan is a manifestation of my values of compassion and kindness and wellness. It's the means to an end, the end being compassion. And it's the means to be as compassionate as I could be, reflect that compassion. And so if that's the case, and I, I think it is, what's really interesting is there's not a lot of ways that we could care about social issues and manifest that value, that ethic in our daily lives, right? If you're opposed to the death penalty, how many things could you do throughout the day to manifest that opposition to the death penalty, for instance, right? Not a lot. You write a letter, you can be, you know, you can change jobs. I mean, you can do some things, but in this, it really is so part and parcel of who we are and our relationships and our communities and our identities and our families. So it's such a threat. Now, on one hand, I think it's so exciting that we can so easily and effortlessly manifest our values. On the other hand, we have to be aware that that is what is the biggest threat to those people in our lives who feel that as a mirror, you're holding up a reflection that says to them they're not reflecting their values and their behavior. So it's just tricky. It is tricky. And I think that's, that's the whole crux of being vegan is we are kind of standing up against, and I think it's, it says, well, we're going to talk about your book a bit later, but where you say staying vegan in a world that wants you to eat meat, dairy and eggs, and that's the status quo. We are uh, a very small part of the population who are in many ways bold enough and brave enough to swim against the tide. And you know, the mainstream narrative and the, and the main bulk of our communities, societies doesn't want us to be different because they don't want mm -hmm. us to shake the boat. They don't want us to hold up a mirror to their lifestyles and their way of eating and living, which they know, I think, intrinsically, a lot of people know intrinsically is not something that 
is necessarily intrinsically positive. Mm-hmm. So when it when it comes to sort of animals, um, you know, animals and veganism are, are deeply intertwined. That's the whole reason veganism is ex- exists as a as a as a lifestyle, as a philosophy. What are some of your earliest memories of animals as a child? Did you have any companion animals, or how did you f- connect with animals as a child? Oh, very, very deeply. And I can say it's so interesting because I grew up with a sister. She was not an animal person. My parents weren't even really animal people. My father is one of these people who has a really big heart, but he doesn't want to look at anything that is related to animal. Who does? I mean, but he will you know, say, do, you know, both don't I don't even want to look at it. But I had a dog. I was about six or seven when we adopted our dog. Well, adopted. I mean, she was from a family who had had a schnauzer and we brought one of the puppies home. It wasn't a rescue situation and it wasn't really like a breeder situation, but it was a family who'd had, you know, their dog had had puppies. And so we brought her home. And I, I remember so vividly the first couple nights she was home with us and crying most certainly because she was away from her siblings and her mother and my mother I say this in the book you know we'd I guess we had just bought a refrigerator so we had a refrigerator box we put her in which is a massive box <laughs> she must have been scared to death not being able to see anything with these four walls right and just cried and whimpered and I just cried. I was so, I felt her pain. I, you know, I think a lot of us, I, I, I'm very empathic. I feel very, if someone cries, I cry. I mean, and this dog was crying and I just felt so terrible. And my mother thankfully um, understood my, my concern and she, she allowed my dog to sleep with me and kind of ease her suffering. So it was that kind of feeling I always had, if there was anything, any animal I saw, you know, suffering in any way, a bird that I remember fell from a tree and I wanted to help and even animals, I remember going to the petting zoo and I didn't like that they were behind, you know, the fence and they were small petting zoos, but I didn't, I didn't like it, but they were all just little seeds of, of course, this is, you know, how we interact with animals. And even if you weren't an animal person, like I do consider myself an animal person. I always say that you don't have to, you know, love animals to not want to hurt them. Uh, and I think that's true, but I think most people are compelled to not want to hurt animals, even if they don't you know, want to hang out with them. And I think when it comes to kind of compassion though, like we, we intrinsically assume that all human beings are imbued with compassion at birth and, and have that connection with animals because i think if you look at a lot of like human children they are intrinsically drawn to animals you know cute fluffy animals they want to touch them and cuddle them but do you think that all human beings are like that or do you think it's something that we have to learn do you think we're born with that quality i do think we're born with that quality i do i think it gets cultivated and i think it gets nurtured as we're growing we do need to be taught that if you pull a dog's tail, it will hurt the dog, right? So we do need to be taught how to behave around others so that we're being kind and not hurting anybody. But I do think the instinct, you know, kind of like what I said, if someone cries, I cry. I mean, I think if we see someone suffering, an animal or or a human animal, I think our instinct is to feel bad and to want to do something. We don't tend to look and go, yeah, whatever. So I do, I do think it, it is something that's innate. And I think it's also cultivated as we're growing. And then I do think there are some people who are pathologically inclined. I mean, there are some people who lack empathy and that's obviously a larger issue for how they engage with the world and how they treat others, both human and non-human. But I think for the most part, I think the default is that we are compassionate beings, or at least we have the capacity for great compassion. And I think that's what's true for everybody. 
Absolutely. I think compassion is definitely, I think the Buddha talked about it being like a seed, a seed of compassion that exists within all of us that it needs watering and nourishing, as you say. But I think that also that seed um, can fail to germinate if, as you say, the child or, ch- or children or person is not nourished and nurtured at a young age. So that seed never fully blossoms in people. And I think sometimes, particularly in men as well, and I think this is part of the reason why um, the vegan community is some 86% women and, and men are falling far behind because as a society, uh, you know, young women are encouraged to to be open, to connect with it with others. You know, women have their groups where they talk and they, they're very open with each other, whereas men just don't have that support network or they're discouraged from it. They're discouraged from being emotional. They're discouraged from showing their feelings. So that compassionate nature, that seed within a lot of young boys or young young children who happen to be male are, is not nourished and it's not nurtured. And my theory is, is that is often why the the vegan it's a ve- veganism is a bit of a harder sell to men because they they have to be tough and strong and men have to eat meat and you know veganism is for girls and vegan and not eating and then being kind and sweet to animals is for women and you know men are strong and men kill things. <laughs> Absolutely, and you know? I think it's also in in pretty much part and parcel of that is it's not just that they're not cultivated to be compassionate and soft and open and giving, right? I mean, just kind of, if you think of masculine traits versus feminine traits, also they have to undo the learning of being tough and insensitive, you know, lacking empathy because as much as compassion is cultivated, so is disconnection. I hear from a lot of men who've written to me, not everybody grew up as a hunter, but that's an example. I mean, that's such a, an egregious example of men who have been told explicitly by their male family members, suck it up, don't cry like a baby, don't be a girl, right? I mean, kind of all this messaging. So not only are they taught to quell that compassion, because of course, it's not just in females, it's in boys as well. They're also taught that to be supported and appreciated by their family members, they also have to be tough and not show any softness. And so there's a lot of undoing that has to take place, which adds to the challenge. It is. It's so true. And this goes for so many things in our society. And I think all these isms, sexism, racism, speciesism, they're all intertwined. Melanie Joy talks about it a lot in her work. And and I think when once you try to undo the learnings uh, specifically around eating and killing animals. I think you start to unpick these other isms that exist within us as well. I've noticed a lot of men specifically who I've spoken with, how they've began to see the world in a different way. They look at women in a different way and they treat and, and kind of appreciate people in different ways. I think it's also mostly connected to that compassionate seed. As the seed of compassion flourishes and blossoms, you you work, you increase your and expand your circle of compassion to all beings. And I think you you probably feel more love, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I talk about, I mean, one of the things I say is I didn't become vegan as much as I removed the blocks to the compassion that had already been inside of me, right? So this wasn't a becoming something that I hadn't been before. It was the manifestation of it. And it was the letting go of the things that blocked me from being as compassionate as I already was inside. There's just all these social blocks and emotional blocks and cultural blocks and all those things and all those messages that hindered the compassion. And that to me is what it means to be vegan is to, again, live as unconditionally compassionately as possible and really get to your true nature as much as possible. I mean, that's the hope for all human beings. And that's what I think is really beautiful about this thing we call vegan is that it's an opportunity to really go to that place of vulnerability and 
our real humanity and to manifest that every day. I think that is such a gift. And I mean, I think it just happens to be this thing called veganism, which is such a beautiful way to be able to do that. Absolutely. I'm speaking of kind of living and being, being living, living lifestyles. What do you think about the fact that, you know, there are billions of people around the world who practice, uh, you know, religions whose central tenets are compassion, of respect for others and kindness, you know, 99% of people who practice these religions do not even discuss or consider animals. Um, I myself have been a practicing Buddhist for uh, just over 10 years now, and I was part of a Buddhist community that didn't even think about animals, consider animals. We talked about compassion and kindness, yet we, we would go home and munch into a meatloaf or a bacon sandwich, and, and the animal didn't even come into it. Is there, obviously you talked about being part, did you say Unitarian Church? Mm-hmm. You're part of Unitarian Church. So is that, is that, that's a Christian church, is that right? Technically the Unitarian Universalists uh, were a Christian okay. sect, but yes, I'm not okay. part of it anymore. I grew up Catholic. Okay. Oh, okay. Wow. So being Catholics are even sort of, uh, what's the word, stricter form of Christianity. What, what's your sort of experience of being a part of that world, of a religious world where, you know, animals didn't feature you know, and, their, and their identities or, or individualism isn't, isn't present? I mean, how do you feel about the fact that so many people who practice these religions, but then animals don't, are not a part of it? I mean, I did grow up Catholic and I, you know, was exposed to a figure like St. Francis, who I adored. He was definitely a figure that I looked to when I was young and admired and and really aspired to be like. And then we also had the blessing of the animals. That was something that's done annually around St. Francis's birthday every every year in the Catholic Church. And so we do embrace animals, just certain animals, right? When I think about essentially hypocrisy that you're talking about in people who consider themselves religious or practice different religions. For me, I just don't see it as any different than just we are human and that's what we're dealing with is that tension between, you know, considering ourselves compassionate people and then behaving in a way that doesn't reflect that compassion, especially around a topic that appears to conflict with our other identities. So we were just talking about a masculine identity, you know, female identity, identities around parents, identities around, uh, you know, as you're talking about religious folks. I see it just as a microcosm as who we are as human beings. And to me, what I really think we underestimate, and religion is a great example of this, is the power of the social groups we belong to. We need to belong. We need to feel like we're not standing out. We need to feel like we're not rocking the boat. And that is a really important, huge part of who we are and how we engage in the world. And so religion's an example of that. People feel part of a community and identity when they're part of different religions. And if something like quote unquote, veganism looks like it's actually antithetical to those identities, then you're going to reject that identity, especially if it's a new one. And it looks like it's a new one. That's why I constantly emphasize that this is not different than what you already believe. It is who you are. That's what I think has to be cultivated. A, giving people a voice so they don't feel like they're actually rocking the boat, but are actually manifesting who they already are, who are already manifesting the values they're taught in those communities, in this case, in religion. I don't see it as different than how we all these other ways and all these other areas in our lives where we, you know, are again not manifesting the compassion that we already have. I see it as pretty much the same on the same spectrum. I guess it's for as a as a spiritual person myself and and having that point of enlightenment, for me, religious slash spiritual people for me are a little bit 
a little bit more under the microscope when it comes to, you know, I don't, I don't want to say pointing the finger, but I'm going to say pointing the finger of hypocrisy because you, you realize that as spiritual people, we are going around promulgating and, and speaking about compassion and talking about kindness. And yet we sit down three times a day and eat a meal where, you know, an animal probably died a violent and, uh, and not very compassionate death. So I, I guess it's, the question is, is there's billions of people who, whose lives are deeply intertwined with a spiritual practice which pushes this message of compassion, yet this blind spot, the animals, or the, the life of an animal, just seems so hidden to them. It's just a bit of a mystery to me, I, and it goes for myself as well. How was I able to go for so many years as a person who really felt like I was compassionate and I was talking about Buddhism all the time and the importance of kindness to others, yet I didn't see it. I couldn't, it was sort of invisible. Absolutely. And I think what's really important for us as advocates is that it doesn't be a mystery for us because if it's a mystery, then it seems like it's something we can't touch or solve or be part of because what you're talking about in terms of how people who consider themselves spiritual or religious. I don't think it's any different than people who don't consider themselves spiritual or religious. I think most people want to believe about themselves that they're good, kind people. And that may be reflected in religious practices or in just daily practices or in relationships. I just think that everybody believes they're good, kind people. I don't I mean, that's, I think the point is that people, we know the people who consider themselves religious are no different and no better and no, you know, kinder than, or not kinder than your average person. They're aspiring to it, just like I think so many of us are. And there is a blind spot. That's, that's the point is that willful blindness is really powerful and it's encouraged and reinforced by the communities we're part of. So, we have to understand what the narrative is that we're telling ourselves. I bet if you really unpacked it, Robbie, you would be able to understand why you were able to do what you were doing. We all can. We all can sit back and go, I was willfully, bl willfully blind. How did I do this? I loved animals, but I ate them. Well, if we really unpacked it, we'd say, well, wh why was that possible? Because everybody around us was telling us that that's the right way. That's the way things are. I mean, those questions I asked my parents, their answers were, animals are here for us, right? And this is in religion and it's not in religion. My mother was Protestant. She was not from, you know, the Catholic church, but that was still the notion is that, you know, these animals were created for us and we have to do that. You know, the normal, necessary, natural, uh, you know, excuses that we use, uh, a la Melanie Joy. I mean, those are the stories we tell ourselves so that it becomes quite a, quite a risk, I mean, if you really believe, and I do think many of us believe that we will be sick and we won't thrive and our children won't thrive if we don't eat animal products because we're hearing it from everybody around us, marketing, the companies themselves, our religious leaders, everybody we look up to, the people, you know, the, the authority figures. Well, it takes a lot to even get past all that, to even know that there's a question you can ask differently than what you're being told. You don't know what you don't know. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Mm, yeah, it's fascinating. It's it's a sort of, you know, because I do sit with it quite a lot and think, why did I, you, you see these little girls and boys on social media telling their mummies and daddies they don't want to eat meat anymore. And I just, you know, I think I'm a kind and compassionate person. Why did I, why was I not like that? Why did I not get it straight away? Oh, I'm eating animals. I don't want to do this because I'm so passionate and so determined to, to never eat animals again and to never, you know, harm uh, another sentient being, uh, you know, intentionally uh, ever again. Why, why did I not 
uh, feel like that as a child. And I think the point is, is we have to make peace with these things, don't we? And just realize that we have to move forward from where we are, right? Rather than, like you say, trying to look at that blind spot and, and wonder how it got there. We kind of know. <laughs> we do kind of know. Uh, I think Tobias Leonard says it really beautifully is so many people eat animals because so many people eat animals, right? Mm, we, we are part of these larger communities and these microcosms. If it's a mystery, we're never going to, we're going to still see the people who are not where we're at yet as different than we are. And they're no different. We just had the awakening, the, the epiphany, the, ex- the openness, the experience of seeing things differently. And so that's why I think what's so important is as we're having conversations with people who still haven't done that yet, is that it doesn't seem like it's so different than what they're already doing, who they already are. And that's what I mean about when she says, have you always been vegan? No, like we, we are all kind of grappling with trying to be the best people we can be. And when we can find the common ground with the people who are, and I'm not saying you're not doing this, but if we can find the common ground with the people who are not yet vegan, who are not yet manifesting their compassion in that way, then they're more inclined to go, oh, so tell me more about that. You're not some ethereal being that I can't identify with. You were just like me. You did like me. You did eat animals, even though you loved them. So I just think there's those connections we can make. The more we understand our story, the more we'll be able to connect with other people's stories. I think, as you say, common ground, or as, as a lot of people refer to, the, like the Socratic method, where we talk about asking questions and inquiring in others and drawing out responses rather than making bold and brash statements, telling people what to think, what to be, defining other people's realities. There is a real art to it. And you know, obviously, you address a lot of that in your book, which we'll talk about in a bit. But before we proceed with that, with the community as it is, you know, you've been around it and part of it for a long time there is elements of it which can from the outside to you know to any of the the non-vegan listeners who listen to the podcast who who have vegan friends or family you know it is often and can sometimes be described quite as quite religious as quite kind of cult-like you know when I first joined the vegan community in the first year I I did question I thought you know am I doing the right thing have I joined some kind of Mm -hmm. strange food cult you know because I didn't know anything about it when I first joined why do you think you know groups because this is not just strict anything to do with veganism uh, it's really a human thing but why do you think humans kind of you know shift into this very strong and overzealous behavior when they first grasp something which which, which may set itself apart from the mainstream or from the norm i do think people are sensitive to feeling like someone is trying to change them or that they're judging them or that there's the implication that what they're doing is wrong. And so we are such egotistical, egocentric beings that, of course, it takes a person who is committed to self-awareness to understand that what someone else is doing and how they're showing up in the world is not a reflection of me. But for the most part, I think we don't do that. We think that everything kind of happens, happens, you know, as a reflection of me or in response to me or in reaction to me. So when someone shows up being excited and enthusiastic about being vegan, I think the first thing that non-vegan will feel is that you're judging me for not being vegan. I mean, that just happens, right? We know that 
what happened. We know that we all we have to do is say, I'm vegan. And someone could immediately get defensive and start, you know, just get asked those defensive questions or what have you. And it's like, I just, I didn't say, and you should be, I just said, I'm vegan. So we know that that happens and that, that it happens. We need to just be aware of it and understand that that doesn't have anything to do with us. So as much as we see other people being selfish in response to us being vegan, we also have to understand that someone's reaction to our being vegan is not about us also. So I think that people are already sensitive to it. And look, we, as I said earlier, we are so excited when we're first aware and awake and vegan and that we do share with great enthusiasm and it's sweet and we should, and we shouldn't stop that. I, in the book, I talk about the etymology of the word evangelism and it means the, you know, to share good news. There's nothing wrong with that, but people conflate that with evangelicalism, I think, and they just conflate it with the idea that you're proselytizing. So if we can separate it, and look, we're not going to be able to control how people respond, but I think we could do a lot to make sure that we're really clear that how we're behaving and what we're saying is authentic and it doesn't have an agenda and it doesn't have an ulterior motive because I think people can read that. So I talk about walking that line between being enthusiastic, do not stop being passionate, do not stop telling the truth and be really honest with yourself. If you're talking to someone and your intention is to convert them or change them or change their mind, they're going to feel that. But if you're talking to someone and your intention is to raise awareness and speak the truth and engage them in a conversation, they're going to feel that too and they're going to be less inclined to be defensive. That might take a few times that you have those conversations with those people. I think it can happen. And that is about cultivating relationships, which I think we can all do better. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Because the, the chapter you're talking about, you talk about evangelism, fundamentalism, and veganism, which I love that. I'm gonna <laughs> definitely going to use the word veganism. Because um, I think, you know, a bit like being an ex-smoker, when people are ex-smokers, they become very evangelistic about it and quite condescending and patronizing sometimes. That relationship that you have with your with your newfound knowledge is so volatile because you can make or break someone else's entry point into the vegan community or to the vegan lifestyle just by how you manage that first encounter with the book and your discussions around fundamentalism like what are some of your sort of top tips for making sure that when we broach this subject uh, with people in our lives such as friends and family how do we avoid pushing people away? I really do believe that every interaction we have with each other on whatever topic it is starts with our minds and starts with how we think about that encounter and how well our intention is for that encounter long before we open our mouths and talk to people. Every vegan knows what it's like to constantly be asked to defend your eating choices, to be outside the status quo and not feel a sense of belonging, especially in communities where you once felt a sense of belonging, feeling the pressure to be perfect, often self-inflicted, and experiencing guilt, experiencing anger, experiencing remorse, common experiences that if not addressed, if not managed, can often lead to giving up entirely. In The Joyful Vegan, I provide the tools for overcoming and navigating these most common challenges, arming readers with solutions and strategies for coming out vegan to family, friends, and coworkers, cultivating healthy relationships with vegans and non-vegans, for communicating effectively, for finding community, and for finding peace of mind in a world that wants you to eat meat, dairy, and eggs. By implementing the tools in this book, readers will find that they can live ethically, eat healthily, engage socially, and remain a joyful vegan. I have my own kind of mantra around what my intention is when I'm engaging with people, whether it's a group or 
if I'm giving a talk or if it's an interview or if it's just a conversation, I try to be really clear about what my intention is. And I always say that, that my intention is to speak my truth, to, to, you know, raise awareness about the suffering of animals and, and be their voice. And if that's my intention, I can't but succeed. Like, there's no way I can fail because that's my intention. But if my intention is to change someone's mind, change someone's behavior, convert them, I am now in territory that I have no control over. And if that's my intention, not only do people feel that, we're not going to succeed because we can't control that. And then what we wind up feeling is frustrated and angry and indignant and judgmental. So that's why I think it's so important first to get really clear about what your intention is. The second thing is I think we're really afraid of pauses. We're afraid of silence. We're afraid of gaps in conversation. We can, you know, share what we share and then let there be silence and let people process what we're saying. We're so we so desperately want to speak for the animals and raise awareness about so many, you know, issues where they're suffering and where they're affected by us that we think we have to have all the answers. And so I really kind of what you said about the Socratic method, I really encourage people to ask questions and not always feel like you have to have all the answers and be confident. Listen, (laughs) I guess that's my fourth, you know, maybe that's my fifth confident fourth Listen, fifth, I don't think we're great listeners because I think we're really anxious to convey information. So these are all communication skills that are beyond just advocacy. And I try to practice them. They take commitment, but the more you cultivate those muscles, the easier it is as you're, as you're engaging with people. Mm. We've got two ears and one mouth because we should listen twice as much as we speak. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when it comes to, you know, uh, this uh, kind of form of activism, you know, so when it comes to forms of activism, there's so many, there's obviously, you know, there's direct action, there's vegan outreach, there's social media in all the different forms. It's a bit more controversial question. Do you think any of them can be damaging to our movement or do you just feel like people should just be able to do whatever they want? Well, I would never tell anybody what to do or not to do, no matter what people are going to do what they want to do anyway. And that's part of the journey that we're all on is, you know, the way we engage when we first become vegan or we first become an activist is different than how we tend to settle in once we've done it for a while. And so that's part of the journey. And I wouldn't deny anybody that I would ask that people don't judge other people for doing what they are doing and think that the way you're doing it is the right way. I think there's room for every kind of advocacy. There's room for every kind of activism. Not everyone's going to be attracted to every kind. There's there are so many different kinds. And not only are you not going to be attracted to different all different kinds or one way over another way, is the way the public response to the different kinds of advocacy is, is different. It varies. So I'm not going to be someone who's going to respond to X. You might be someone who responds to that. I'm also not going to be someone who is comfortable doing X, but you might be. But I'm good at doing this over here. So I'm going to do this over here. So I think there's room for everybody. Of course, I do think there are some, not even just types, but I do think there's methods that I think can turn people off and I can, I think can be damaging. But again, that's just kind of my perspective around, I am someone who wants to engage and I'm someone who wants to connect. I'm not someone who wants to point the finger. I'm not someone who wants to make someone feel bad. I tend to walk the line between being passionate and also being compassionate. And I'm not saying that people who do things that are more in your face are not being compassionate. But I, again, I think we have to check ourselves and we have to check what our intention is and what the effects are. You know, I don't think we can always measure what we do, but I think we have to be mindful that even if we do something and, you know, it's a room full of 500 people, 
and 499 people are not receiving it well, but we say, but that one person, that one person received it well, that's 499 people who didn't. And I think we just have to try and, and look at what is effective, where we're at our highest and where we're connecting and engaging with people in a way that they can hear it. And that's authentic for us. So it's always walking these lines. Absolutely. And I think, you know, as campaigners, you know, we're all working to create change. And, you know, we have uh, an end goal, which is ending the use and abuse of animals for for human desire. But the tactics uh, that people take in their campaigns are nuanced. You know, direct action, for example, is is a form of activism that takes on many forms. And my personal opinion is that we have to be very cautious about just performing forms of direct action to serve our own egos so that we feel better about what we're doing so we feel like we're doing something for me as a person as an act campaigner and as an activist I don't feel that we should just take any action because we feel that it is you know it's going to have an effect because we just think it will I think it's really important to to try and measure the success of what we do but also not just that to constantly be uh, asking ourselves questions. Is this effective? Is this being received well? Is this having the desired effect? The one thing that always stands out for me, the one sort of tactic that stands out for me is the form of forms of direct action where activists go inside a restaurant and they stand at the tables of people consuming animals and shout things like meat is murder or, you know, stop killing animals or a lot of quite strongly worded phrases. And and for me, as a person who's quite compassionate and quite empathetic, I could imagine sitting at those tables and feeling anger or shame or upset or even fear. But for me, the nuance of that kind of tactic is the difference between being inside the restaurant and being outside the restaurant is light years apart. The difference between inside the restaurant and shouting and making people feel afraid or being outside with a table with flyers and posters and vegan cookies, it's not that different in distance, but it is it is a lifetime apart of the effectiveness, in my opinion, because one is push and one is pull. And I think that, you know, as activists, a lot of people go head first into these kinds of campaigns because they feel like they worked for other social justice movements. So why shouldn't they work for this one? But when it comes to what people eat, it's such a deeply personal thing. And as you talked about, we talked about with religious people and spiritual people, you know, it's very easy for them to talk about compassion. But when you talk about what they're eating, it's a no-go zone, you know, and that goes for everyone, really, as you pointed out. And I think I do feel like we, we as activists, as, an, as, a, as, a, as a community, do have to question and ask ourselves what we're doing. Is this pushing people away or is it bringing people closer to us? Yeah, absolutely. You said very pointedly what I was skirting around. And I agree. I, I, I encourage advocates to ask themselves the question, is this, is this effective? Do I want to be right or do I want to be effective? Because you could say, but we have to do that because people have to know and they're doing this thing and they're not aware of it and they need to know it needs to be in their face because otherwise they're not going to hear it and they're not going to understand. Like, okay, that might be true and you might be right. But is it effective? We have to ask that question. When I was on the streets and I was doing my own street TV, which is what we called it at the time, I had Meet Your Meat playing on a monitor. I had Why Vegans. And what was I really love about that and what the Anonymous for the Voiceless are doing, obviously, you know, I mean, in the case of my situation, it was only me. And sometimes another person would join me. But they're invited to watch if they want to. 
as you said, push versus pull. I had, you know, literature. They're invited to take it or not. They're invited to talk to me or not. I, I'm not going and confronting them in the middle of behavior that, as you said, is so deeply personal and so deeply ingrained. And then what happens, I think, from that too, is that, again, if the expectation is that you think that at that moment, people are going to put down their forks and say, oh my God, I've seen the light. Thank you so much for showing me the wrong way. And now I understand. And I think that is somewhat sometimes the expectation because what happens is when that doesn't happen, people then, it just furthers the narrative that people, they lack compassion. It furthers the narrative that they don't care. It furthers the narrative that they want to stay asleep. And I don't think that's what's true of people. I think you confront them in a situation while they're doing the thing that they're clearly not comfortable doing. That's why we make so many excuses. It's just not going to work. That doesn't mean you don't tell the truth. It doesn't mean you don't, as you said, you know, share, share the information, table, et cetera, et cetera. So, so yeah, those are the ones that I think for me are the most difficult to say. I think there's value in that. That's probably the one that I do think of where I just, it, it breaks my heart because I do think of how people feel in that situation. And these are good, kind people. Um, they're being forced to confront something that could be done in a way that they might be able to um, see it if, if they were guided rather than goaded. I will obviously caveat my, my opinions with the fact that I do believe in a free and democratic society. Yeah. People have the right to protest wherever they wish. And if activists wish to go inside restaurants and shout meat is murder at people, I believe that they have a right to do that. People, you know, in, in a free society, as long as there's no violence, I believe that people um, should be free to do, to do as they choose. And I think that is what's wonderful about living in a, in a Western democratic society or, or wherever you live in the world. Um, you know, you have the freedom to do that, to stand on your soapbox here in the UK and in London, we have something called speaker's corner where people have to stand, literally stand on a soapbox and you can talk about anything and you can literally talk about anything. There's no limitation. It's obviously it could be quite scary, obviously, because I think sometimes we think, it, you know, is freedom of speech, something that could be damaging to our society because people can get to say and do whatever they want, whatever that is, and are there limits to the way people get to behave? But at the same time, you know, who gets to decide what people can and can't say? Because obviously, you know, it's very easy to slip into a authoritarian, totalitarian society where everything is filtered and cut down. And there's a lot of this in Japan. I've got friends in Japan who told me about how in Japanese society, everything's very uniform and people have to behave in a certain way. And there's an expression that goes, the nail that sticks up must be hammered down. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and we're, we're quite lucky to live in a society where we are able to challenge each other. We can walk into a restaurant and stand over someone or walk into a, a shop like um, Canada Goose. We have protests outside of our Canada Goose stores every day. Um, with people with signs playing back um, videos of animals being brutally skinned alive, you know, so that is shocking and it's horrific, but people are ultimately showing the truth. Okay. <laughs> is it effective? I don't know. Right. Right. And I, and I, and I'll just add to that because of course I agree with you. Absolutely. That is what's so beautiful about our democracy. I just want to just add that, it also means that people have the right to not participate. And if they're Absolutely. not doing that, that doesn't mean it's because they don't care as much as you do. And it's not because they don't want to reveal the truth. Not everybody is going to be comfortable doing every kind of activism. And I think that for me, if I were to say, if anyone's listening and 
is interested in what, you know, what we could do better. I think it's just let people do what they are doing and you do what you're doing. If, if what you feel you're doing is the right thing for you and that's where you get the most charge and you think it's effective, et cetera, that's great. Just, I think there's a temptation to say that you're doing it the right way and everybody else is doing it the wrong way. I hear from people who are criticized by, you know, direct action advocates who tell them that they're too soft because they're doing X, Y, and Z, you know, whatever it is. And, uh, or that, you know, if they really care, they should be doing that. And I just don't think that's fair either. So again, let's all of us do our work, then step back and don't worry about the people who aren't doing what you're doing. If you're part of a community and you're all doing it together, then keep motivating each other. But let's not criticize the people who aren't doing that for doing what they're doing. For 20 years, I've been guiding people to becoming and staying vegan. And I am convinced that the food is the easy part. People learn the practical aspects, what to eat and where to shop and how to cook with considerable ease. The most challenging part for most people is actually dealing with the social and cultural and emotional aspects, being asked to defend yourself all the time, living with the overwhelming awareness of animal suffering, people expecting you to have all the answers and advanced degrees in nutrition and philosophy and history and anthropology, religion and animal husbandry, ecology and the culinary arts. I also know that after some time passes, just being vegan feels like it's not enough. We want to do more. We want to be more active. We want to figure out how to spend our time and our money in the most effective ways. We ask, what can I do? How can I help? What's the best use of my time? What are the most effective forms of advocacy? Is it enough to just be a volunteer or can I turn my passion and my skills into a career? Can I make a living while helping animals? You know, one thing I will say is even though I don't necessarily agree with the tactics of people in going into restaurants and doing direct action in restaurants, at least they're doing something. And I think that's, that is a, that is the positive. You know, we do need and, and it would be good if, if more people were able to find the courage or the time or the resources to do something and it's you don't have to walk into a restaurant and with a placard there's all kinds of different incredible ways in which people can speak up for animals or at least try and influence people to to adopt a more plant forward lifestyle what are some of the sort of key things you think that that people can do that are the easy things that people can do to sort of further the, the growth of our movement everyone has to ask themselves what am i good at and what do i love and where do I think there's a need? Because what we do well and the gifts that we have to give to the world are needed. And we will be more effective if we're doing something that we're already good at. That's kind of a nebulous way of answering that question because I think everybody's different. But I do think there's so many things we can do in our own lives that, you know, you might not get the social media clicks, but, you know, writing a letter to the editor, writing editorials, getting involved with your city council. Um, you know, I, I started a political action committee for animals here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And we work with our legislators. You know, I walk into a room and my mayor, my mayor knows my name uh, and she knows us as the animal people. That's really powerful, especially as you're tapping into the people who have the power in society. You know, these are the influencers in terms of legislation and laws for animals. Get involved in that way if you can, if that's something that moves you. I am a great believer that people really want to know like what to do. I mean, 
the 30 day vegan challenge, my online program is free. Send people the online program, give them resources, go to the grocery store with them, you know, feed them good food that they've never tried before, have conversations with people. I mean, so there's a lot we can do that doesn't take very long on a daily basis. I mean, we used to call it armchair activism, right? There's a lot we can do in those um, arenas, but use your voice and use your skills. You've got something to contribute and, uh, and the animals need every form of, of advocacy, so do, do, just do what moves you. And, and if you try one thing and that doesn't, you know, you don't feel right or you don't feel comfortable, then try something else. I mean, it's really just a matter of, you know, kind of finding your voice. You know, for me, it was writing. For me, it was communication. And that's what I do. You know, someone might say that that's not the right thing to do. Oh, it's just what I'm doing. And it feels, it feels like the right <laughs> thing to do for me. In your, in your book, The Joyful Vegan, which we're, we're discussing now, in chapter seven, you talk about discussing and talking with people, someone like a hunter, say, who's completely polar opposite to you and your views. How important is it to learn to communicate with people who have sometimes violently opposite viewpoints to us? I think it's hugely important. I mean, not all of us have those opportunities. I do live in a bubble. I am in California. I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area. I don't know a lot of hunters. like So <laughs> I don't have the opportunity. And I say opportunity because I really love these conversations. I've, I've had some opportunities because I, you know, the Bay Area is its own bubble. You leave the Bay Area and you're in California. You're in rancher community. You're in hunting communities. I mean, so the, you know, I've had opportunities and I take them because I really, really, I think they're so important. I think what's really important, especially now at a time, and I hate saying this seems different than other times in history, because I do think there's been other times like this, but we are in a time when it feels really polarized. And we are in a time when we are very tempted to see us as right and everybody else is wrong, and we're good and everybody else is bad, uh, especially around politics, especially around different parties. My hope for myself, and I'll just speak for myself, is that, that I at least try to understand the perspective of the person who is different than I am. I don't have to agree, but engaging with them and even just understanding their perspective, I think one of the reasons we're tempted to not do that is because we think it's going to shake our own perspective or it's going to invalidate our perspective and validate theirs. And so I think we're tempted to not even want to see the perspective of someone like a hunter because we want to just write them off as in black and white terms, right? They're bad, I'm good. Now, and I say in the book, like if I were to say to you, Robbie, if your father was a hunter and I were to say, man, all hunters are evil, they should just go away. You would say, that's my father. He's so good in so many ways. He's a good father. He's a good husband. He's a good friend. He does this thing that, you know, he was conditioned to do when he was young. I don't agree with it. I don't like it. I wish he didn't do it, but he's not a bad person. And here's why he did it. And here's what he got from it when he was, you know, young and his, he went out with his brothers and his father, and that's how he was able to connect with them, right? I mean, so there's all these deeper reasons why people have the ideologies and the perspectives we do. And I think it's just important to understand that because then we're at least coming from a place of, okay, we don't have to agree, but I don't have to feel that I can't even talk to you because we're not on the same page. And that's where I think we're at is that we don't even want to talk to someone who is different than we are because we think it's going to threaten our own perspectives or whatever. So it's a long way of saying, I do think it's very important. <laughs> 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 and social media which we all use and are heavily addicted to uh speak for myself particularly <laughs> you know they create echo chambers and they create these these places where we have 
uh, you know, what I sometimes call the nodding dog syndrome, where, you know, you put a, a, a statement out and all the nodding doggies nod around you and there's no one there to really challenge you. I make a point of never, ever blocking or deleting someone off my personal social media unless they are incredibly outspoken or vicious towards me or, or, th- or threatening, you know, violently threatening. I think it's so important for us to have people of different political persuasions, of different, you know, viewpoints on our social media. Speaking of politics, though, it is, it is kind of strange how a lot of people seem to assume that being vegan is a sort of left-wing liberal thing, but actually there is a lot of right, writer-leaning people, conservative people. And sometimes when, as vegans, I think, in, in, in across the vegan community, people can make the assumption that everyone is left-leaning and you can win po- politics intertwined. Because, you know, veganism is a social justice thing. When we talk about our politics, some people are shocked when you when you see right leaning conservative types popping up saying I don't agree with you and and then it becoming about the politics because I think you know caring about animals and caring about the environment you know since when did that become a left wing or right wing political thing but it has done for, for some sure reason. and I think that's another opportunity for us to make sure that we don't just go in that bubble because I am very proud of the fact that I've heard from many different kinds of people from all walks of life over the years I've been doing this work and I'm very proud that they feel that there's a safe space for them to say, I'm X, whatever it is. And usually it's that they don't feel that they can come out and say, I'm Christian and I'm vegan, or I'm Republican and I'm vegan, or I'm anti-choice and I'm vegan. And there's a temptation among vegans to actually want to discredit, well, their beingness (laughs) and say, well, then you're not vegan because you're not supporting you know, this over here, or because you are supporting that over there. It's not for any of us to determine and judge whether someone is what they think they are or not. (laughs) That's not my, that's not my business. Uh, But the point is that for me, if you're not eating animal products, if you are doing so because you want to, you know, again, manifest your values of compassion and wellness, by definition, that's what veganism is. And I think now there's a temptation to say, but no, you're only vegan if, and we have all of these boxes that we expect people to tick to determine whether they're quote unquote, really, truly vegan or not. And I don't think that's healthy. I think we are already a small population. It's already a small enough group because it's already challenging for people to just not eat me dairy and eggs. Like that's already difficult. But if you now say that in order to be vegan and call yourself vegan, not only do you, can you say that, you know, you're vegan because you don't eat meat, dairy, and eggs, but also um, you have to say that you, you know, you're an animal activist, that you uh, are doing it for ethical reasons, that you uh, are only by fair trade, that you only support sustainable companies. I mean, if those are all the boxes people have to tick t- in order to say that they're vegan, we are going to be even smaller. The door through which people will be obligated to walk, will be even smaller. And I don't think that's good for anybody. I think we want to keep it as broad as possible, welcome everybody and continue the conversation and continue the the engagement. So I, I just see that temptation to really narrow veganism. I think they think they're broadening it, but it's actually narrowing what it means to be vegan. And I think that's dangerous. Yeah, we will never see, we will never see a vegan world if people put uh, all these exceptions and... Uh, 
parameters above the door of entry, you could say, mm. into into the uh, this lifestyle. Um, we have to welcome everyone, and sometimes we have to welcome people we don't like very much because they have views about things that are polar opposite to us. But if we want to further the movement, we want to bring change to our world. We have to accept that. You know, we have to accept the things we cannot change and and have the good grace to change the things we can. I think that's the expression. <laughs> it's not only helpful and necessary and realistic, it's also, that is what makes a population diverse. So I know there's a temptation to say, well, no, but if they don't believe this thing over here that uh, reflects justice and fairness and compassion, then they can't be vegan because veganism is about justice and fairness and compassion. So they have to believe this thing in order to reflect that ethic. But that's not diversity. Diversity literally means being welcoming of different ideas and different perspectives and different backgrounds. That's diversity. So I know we talk about diversity. I think we tend to talk about diversity in a very narrow way as well. We talk about it in terms of, you know, welcoming people of color and welcoming people of different ethnicities. But I think that's still narrow. We, it's Diversity means diversity of thought and diversity of ideas. It doesn't mean you have to like them, as you said. It doesn't mean you have to even agree. But that doesn't mean you get to be the guard at the door to say you can't come in because I don't think you should be here. Mm -hmm. Speaking of that, and I don't want to lead you with the answer here, but when it comes to angry vegans, do you feel like that angry vegans could be one of the biggest things holding back the growth of our movement? Well, it's certainly a stereotype. I mean, stereotypes exist for a reason, um, but it's it's so much more complicated than that because you know what I talk about in the book is and and what I'm you know suggesting here is that you know, these are things that we all tend to experience. It's it's not mandated that we experience these things, but we do tend to all experience these stages like anger, um, you know, like the proselytizing like we were talking about before. And anger is one of these that, again, back to our early part of our conversation around cultivation, anger is a natural human emotion it is a natural response, especially to something so heinous once we find out what animals are enduring, so many animals are enduring at our hands. So it's not that I would say, let's not be angry, but A, what can we do to channel that anger in a healthy way, in a healthy, effective way? And B, are we, we need to ask ourselves the question, are we cultivating anger as a way to prove something, for instance, to prove that we care, to prove that we're paying attention, to prove that we're engaged? And I think there's a temptation, and we hear this in social justice circles, if you're not outraged all the time, you're not paying attention. And I don't agree with that. I am not outraged all the time, and I am always paying attention. We can't sustain anger without there being consequences to ourselves, to the people we engage with. We are social creatures. We are a community. We want to persuade people. That's what we say. We want to persuade people to think differently and to see things differently. We're not going to be effective at doing that if it's coming from a place of just only anger. So I do think we have to ask ourselves those questions. I also think that the anger really is the surface for what's underneath, which is, I think, sorrow. And I think you said it earlier about you know kind of masculinity, and it, it goes for both men and women, but I think especially with men in terms of not being able to show the sorrow, not being able to show the sadness, but I hear it from women too. It breaks my heart when I hear people say to me, I don't know how to talk about the animals without crying. And I'm afraid that when people ask me about the animals that I won't be able to talk about it without crying. And my answer is, cry. Be honest and be authentic. If you start welling up because you're talking about the you know, the atrocities that we commit against animals and that your heart is just so moved by that and it hurts you to know that. If, let me 
tell you, if you're tearing up while you're talking about that, people are going to respond to that so much more than they're going to respond to a wall of anger. Anger really is, to me, a more socially acceptable reaction that we think that you know we have to show because it's more socially acceptable than sadness. But I think if we can tap into the sadness and the authenticity and the compassion, uh, then I think it's just, a, not only is it more authentic, it's just, uh, I think it's received a lot better. Absolutely. Just touching on the subject we just we mentioned earlier about identity. Now, veganism as a as a kind of lifestyle, I think started or was given its name is is it by Donald Watson here in the UK actually several decades ago. So it's not been around a very long time, but often is criticised. I don't know what it's like in the US, but it's often criticised over here in the UK as being a very sort of white middle class thing that people of privilege can do because you have the privilege to be able to chew, pick and choose what you eat. What's your experience of the conversation around how do we make veganism an attractive uh, lifestyle to all people and do it in such a way where people feel welcome and they don't feel like you're being told by a bunch of white middle class people about how to live your life and what to eat? Yeah, of course I hear that here. Um, you know, again, I'm in the Bay Area, so there's a lot of conversation around, um, you know, again, diversity and being welcoming and, and social justice, of course. And it's, these are all things I care about. I think, as I was saying before, about how vegans tend to expect everybody who says they're vegan to tick these boxes of what vegan means. Uh, I think, in terms of conflating who we are and our, our various identities, I think there's a temptation to think that vegan is also, uh, you know, an answer for every issue in the world or a, um, you know, a remedy that we're saying that it's a remedy for all issues in the world. I don't think every issue is a vegan issue. <laughs> I think there are definitely issues around food justice, around accessibility, around poverty, around so many aspects around food politics that touch veganism, but I don't necessarily think that means that veganism is the one to answer all of those questions. So I think we have to be really clear about where the idea of veganism ends and where other justice and social issues related to food uh, and food politics begin and figure out where we can you know, walk that road together and solve those problems together in these various ways. But I don't think that every issue is a vegan issue. And so I, you know, I've been doing this a long time and I live in Oakland, California. It's really probably one of the most if not the most diverse city in the country. Uh, I live in a neighborhood that is the most diverse neighborhood in the city. Uh, so, I mean, I've been doing this a long time and I engage everybody from every walk of life. And this is about, you know, accessibility to fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds and beans and mushrooms and grains and herbs and spices. And of course, where people don't have access to those things, that is an issue that we all need to solve together as residents, as citizens, as members of this community. But that doesn't mean that that's a vegan issue that I'm, st I'm that, that by virtue of there being those things in the world and that some people have access to and some people don't, that that's a vegan issue. And so I think we need to work together with communities, but I don't think it means that, that veganism has to solve every issue. I think, again, that's just conflating uh, the the possibility for what veganism is. And I think veganism is really very simple. Uh, and the other issues we have to solve um, related to food um, are more complicated. And I think we can solve them together as vegans and non-vegans. Yeah, I think in the UK, we discuss a lot of these discussions, there's a lot of discussions 
run intersectionality, which is what I think, which is what we're referring to, the, the intersections of other social justice uh, issues within our societies and how they intersect with each, intersect with each other and, and, and how we should interact with others uh, on the borders of these communities or as our communities intersect. You know, and I think a lot of the time intersectionality has been misunderstood or misused or misappropriated or, or, or misappropriated. And a lot of the time there are people who are struggling or suffering in, in various different socioeconomic uh, standings. And I think for me, the main takeaway from everything is to treat others with compassion and not stand on, on a place of judgment and say, well, I'm standing over here and I've been able to, to achieve X, Y, and Z. You know, you should be able to, too, but just for being human, when in fact, actually, we're all different. We all have different opportunities and different sort of levels of privilege in society because of where we're born, because of how much money we have, because of the color of our skin, because of the, um, how educated or uneducated we are. For me, being a vegan uh, and understanding intersectionality is just to understand, is, is to want to listen, as you said, listen to other people's stories and not come from a place of judgment, but to, to encourage and inspire people as much as you can within the, the boundaries of what they're, uh, uh, what, which is what is available to them within their resources. And I think it's so important not to forget that because it is very easy for people, as we've discussed, to slip into a place of judgment and, and, and not really want to listen to a person's u- unique story and identity, really. Yeah, we're all just trying to do the best we can in this world, right? I mean, we are all just, we, we have to give people the benefit of the doubt. And if we just did that, I think, a little bit more online and offline in our families with vegans, with non-vegans, with this kind of activist, with that kind of activist, with non-activists, you know, just if we just gave people the benefit of the doubt, we don't know what's going on in people's lives. We don't know what people are dealing with. We don't know what kind of suffering they're experiencing. We have no idea what most people are dealing with on a daily basis. If we could presume the best about people and do our work, be the best, most compassionate people we can be, speaking our truth, being passionate, being compassionate, I think we could go a long way to create the world that we say that we want, but that starts with us and how we treat each other and how we think about each other and how we perceive each other. And I think if we all cultivated our compassion and we worked on our own stuff and did our work and stepped back, I think we could go a long way in creating a compassionate world that we all say we want. Mm, Amen to that. (laughs) Um, Coming to the end now, uh, regarding the future um, and, and, you know, the world that we, we find ourselves in now, this turbulent time, there's obviously, you know, we look around, there's so much suffering and there's so so many bad things going on in our world, not just with animals, but with humans and the environment. You know, what keeps you centered, positive, joyful and hopeful? What are the, what are the sort of key things that, that help you keep one foot in front of the other? Well, I know this is very controversial, but I would say that one of the things that keeps me hopeful is that we are better today in so many ways than we have ever been. That doesn't mean there are not things that we have to keep working on. It is never, ever going to be a perfect world, but we have to at least have perspective that in so many ways where we can measure success, we can measure progress, we have to at least acknowledge where we have done well. So that not only can we 
celebrate those things and not just dwell in, in how bad things are so that we can celebrate what has been done well and what has been done better than we did before, but also so that we can take from those situations what we need to learn to continue doing better. If we just deny that things are you know better, <laughs> then we're never going to learn how to keep doing things better. So for me, perspective and a sense of history is really important in terms of understanding who we are now, where we are now, and where we want to go. I am a believer in perspective and, and history. I'm also a believer in what we focus on is what we create, literally in terms of our own perspective. And I don't dwell in how bad things are. I see where things are bad. And my first inclination is to you know, ask, what can I do about it? And what am I doing? And I can only do so much in the end, right? And where can I celebrate other people who are doing uh, the work that needs to be done to, to create a better world? Um, so I dwell in that hope. My hope comes from the fact that I have seen so many people make changes. My hope comes from all of these amazing people who are doing such important work in this world. Is it everybody? Do I wish it was everybody? Sure. Of course I do. If we all just kind of did something, <laughs> we could we could do this a lot faster. Like I do believe we're going to get to the places we need to be in terms of bettering this world. I do. I really do. But we could get there a lot faster if we all just like kind of kept our heads down and just did our work and everybody was involved and engaged, right? But I can't control that. All I can do is do my work and keep my head down and keep doing what I think is the best and learning from what I've done well and learning from what I've done poorly and doing it differently and inspire others to do the same thing. So I, I'm hopeful because I choose to be hopeful and it's not delusional. It is, it is not. I mean, it's really grounded in in history and in reality, um, but it's also because there are there are a lot of things to be hopeful about. So call me Pollyanna, but you know that's what enables me to do uh, what I do, and uh, it enables me to stay joyful. Um, but that doesn't mean I stop working. I keep I keep doing what I'm doing, and uh, in the meantime, celebrate the successes that I see um, that I see. Before I let you go, um, I always like to ask my guests this one final question: If you were stuck on a desert island. And it was just you and a pig, <laughs> but your pig, you're, you're vegan, so you're not going to eat the pig. The pig's your friend. Um, and you're stuck on this desert island. And I gave you one vegan dish, one book, and one music album. And that's all you could take with you, one of those, the, each of those three things. What would you take with you? One dish, one book, and one piece of music, one yeah. album. One music album. Oh, gosh. Um, I think the album would be No More Shall We Part. Uh, from Nick Cave. The book would be, ooh, it's a tough one between Marcus Aurelius's Meditations and the Tao Te Ching. Uh, I'll just say the Tao Te Ching, although I've memorized half of it, so maybe I'll take Meditations with me. And the dish, I'll say popcorn, just popcorn. <laughs> Amazing. That's a great choice. Colleen, thank you so much for joining us on the PBN podcast. It's been fascinating and an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Robbie. It was really lovely to talk to you. I look forward to continuing our conversation. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of the PBN podcast. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie. We'll be back next week with more veganism, health, fashion, love, family, relationships, and everything else in between. <laughs>